Happy New Year and welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Daniel Horan and Alan Culp. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Alan is a professor of religion at Baldwin Wallace University in Ohio and serves on the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. You will be able to ask questions today using the chat feature in Zoom. Please send your questions to Alan Culp in the chat and uh, he will be our moderator for the question and answer period. You may post questions anytime during or after the presentation. For best results, I recommend that you watch Tuesday's presentation and speaker view. Please note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. And now it is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Douglas Hurtler, also known as Doug Laurie. Doug is a professional actor, a playwright, retreat leader, and a licensed tour guide in New York City, as well as an actor educator at Fordham University School of Law. His one-man play, Merton and Me, A Living Trinity, debuted in the fall of 2018 for the Corpus Christi chapter of the International Thomas Merton Society. The play is an intimate act of storytelling that explores the nature of faith, identity, and the perils of the ego with Thomas Merton as spiritual guide. After enjoying a number of well-received performances around the country before the pandemic, Doug is excited to relaunch the show once again with scheduled performances starting, God willing, in March. Doug spent the month of January 2020 living with the Trappist community of Mepkin Abbey in South Carolina as a monastic guest, and he looks forward to performing his show there sometime in the fall. He was scheduled to present it there next month, but the performance was postponed due to the current wave of COVID infections. Doug serves on the board of the American Teilhard Association and is in the early stages of writing his first book, which seeks to harness Teilhard de Chardin's cosmic vision of human and spiritual evolution as experienced through the lens of New York City. His website is mertonandme.com. Doug's presentation today is titled, Merton, You and Me, The Reality of Life in the Paschal Mystery. And here he is. Well, hello, everyone. Good evening to all of you. I am truly very happy uh, to usher in this new year with such uh, a wonderful contemplative community. Very happy to see all of your faces. I, uh, first of all, I want to thank Teresa and Alan and Father Dan and St. Mary's and the ITMS board and everyone who has played a role in making a, an evening like this possible and for shepherding and spearheading other Merton events that bring us together and always, I think, renew our hope in the possibility of, of transformation despite the tumult that we are living with today. I'd like to share a little curiosity with you before um, I offer an opening prayer. I was pondering um, the date of Merton's death, December 10th, 
And of course, the date of his birth, January 31st, and something inside of me said, how many days are there from the day of his death until the day of his birth? And I counted them, and the answer is 53. As if there was one day for each year that he walked this earth amongst us. And I couldn't help but think that this time, as we move towards the end of the cycle of a year, and we reflect on our lives, and we move into a new year, and we approach Merton's birthday, or rebirthday, if you will, that he might be offering us an exceptionally liminal space in this time right now, a pre-Lenten time, if you will, to deepen our contemplative commitment that he modeled so beautifully for us during his lifetime. So in a moment, I'm going to uh, offer a prayer and invite you to close your eyes. And as the prayer ends, uh, you will open your eyes and you will be um, carried into the atmosphere of Merton and me, a living trinity, which has certainly been adapted for this, this format. Um, God willing, I will be able to uh, offer the play uh, in person uh, next year for the Merton conference and hopefully in the upcoming months. So it's certainly meant to be experienced in person. Um, but this is what we have now. And in fact, I think we have all probably found throughout all of the craziness of the last couple of years that there can be a different kind of intimacy in this environment. And so with that, let us close our eyes and pray together. O great consoler of unrelenting suffering, O great redeemer of unyielding unfolding, O great reconciler of unremitting longing, your imminent presence is known to all, though faith may be absent, hearts may be hardened, and words may fail. Your transcendent majesty suffuses all creation, though disfigured and weaponized. It so often is in your name, your total and unconditional love never ceases to transfigure all that is, all that was, and all that shall ever be in this dynamic, incarnate, and dramatic universe. Crack open our hearts that we might feel the fullness of divine compassion which flows in the depths of your ineffable mystery. Still our minds that they might contemplate in silent wonder the wisdom of your eternal being. Heal our bodies of the afflictive emotions which besiege our souls and dull our senses that we might into it with every particle of your intimate invitation to live in community with all of our neighbors of every tribe in every corner of the world as has been your desire from the beginning of time. And humble us, O oh Lord, that we might taste and see the reality of war, which lives and breathes in every one of us. Teach us to transform its undying need for division into an unquenchable desire for union. This we pray in you, 
and with you and through you. Amen. The first thing that you have to do before you even start thinking about such a thing as contemplation is to try to recover your basic natural unity, to reintegrate your compartmentalized being into a coordinated and simple whole and learn to live as a unified human person. Who is this I? that you imagine yourself to be. Good evening. What a blessing it is to be here with all of you in this, this world of Zoom. Such a strange yet extraordinary thing to see this sea of faces gathered together from, from God knows where. But look at that. I see so many old friends that I've come to know from a distance over the years. What a joy it is to be with you here face to face. Well, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Thomas Merton. Well, I'm also Father Lewis. I have two names, you see. I acquired a new one in the monastery. But that old one, well, it made sure it was never forgotten. But perhaps that's as it should be. After all, you don't erase your past, you learn to live with it. And if the good Lord wills, you use that past to serve him in the future. Hi, I'm Doug Hurtler. Actually, I'm, I'm Douglas George Hurtler. That is the name I was given at birth. And yet I have this other name, this other identity, Doug Laurie. Which one is the real me? Is there a real me? In 2002, at the age of 32, I wandered into a Barnes and Noble in New York City and a man named Thomas Merton reached off the shelf and grabbed hold of me and would not let go. His book was titled, No Man is an Island. Well, I consider that the spiritual life is the life of man's real self, the life of that interior self whose flame is so often allowed to be smothered under the ashes of anxiety and futile concern, 
the spiritual life is oriented towards God rather than the immediate satisfaction of the material needs of life. But is not for all that a life of unreality or a life of dreams. Well, on the contrary, without a life of the spirit, our whole existence becomes unsubstantial and illusory. These ideas of spirit and God were not new to me. My Catholic upbringing was undeniably a part of my life, even if it was a conflicted and often resentful one. I said my prayers. I believed in something called God. And I wanted to do my part and figure out how to make the world a better place. But something about this book was different. And it got deeper and deeper under my skin as the words shot around my psyche like pinballs, triggering thoughts and emotions that I could not identify or explain. And yet I couldn't put the book down. I allowed myself to be confounded and provoked day after day by this dead monk who was speaking directly to me and my incomprehensible life. Finally, he held a mirror up to my soul and he forced me to confront a question that I had no answer for. Who am I? Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Merton and Me, A Living Trinity. I am Doug Laurie, the actor, the tour guide, and the official host of today's performance. I come to you from New York City, where I have been working on the island of Manhattan. Hey, 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 excuse me over there. Hey, buddy, sorry to interrupt, but uh, are you a fan of the Yankees? At a Mets. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I'm originally from the South Jersey area, just outside of Philadelphia. What? Don't even tell me you're a Philly fan. Oh, come on, please give me a break. Get the hell out of here. Ah, the dialects of New York and the attitudes and the passion and the spirit. And yes, there is spirit in New York City, both religious and secular. And both of them have taught me many things about our deepest human yearnings to live in freedom, in loving relationship to one another, and in a society molded by respect and dignity and rooted in social justice and compassion. You know, I, I can't help but think that, you know, God, okay, had this crazy idea to take people from all over the planet and stick them on an island together. Hey, if they don't kill each other, perhaps there's hope for this great human experiment. I was giving a tour the other day in Greenwich Village to this group of high school kids from Kentucky, okay? We're walking through Washington Square Park. It's a beautiful, sunny day. The fountain is flowing. A jazz ensemble performed. Every color and creed and orientation was united in this extraordinary kaleidoscope of humanity. And suddenly, one of the girls exclaims, well, this city is causing me to rethink everything about myself. Wow, what a gift. Every so often, the walls of our limited and narrow universe, they shatter, revealing something else, something other than what we've always known to be the only truth in our precious, egotistical little world. Well, now, did someone just say something about ego? <laughs> Guilty as charged. 
Well, I certainly spent some time in New York City. Well, I was born in France, raised on Long Island. See? But it was on the streets of that other island, Manhattan, where the first part of my adult life was truly forged. Columbia University, the jazz clubs of Harlem, and the village, and the churches. Well, they're tucked here and there, hiding around every other corner. That island, it fed my soul with friendship and music and poetry and even religion. That island also nearly destroyed me. But pour yourself a nice Kentucky bourbon when you leave here if you want to dive into that story. God knows I've written enough about it to make your head spin. <laughs> Put on some Coltrane or Duke Ellington and settle in for a very long and bumpy ride. No, no, you're, you're here to witness the story of another young man who, like me, was destined to play two characters in his own life. And I'm here because that young man was lost and he needed a friend. So uh, I was born on June 18th, 1970 a happy and energetic and sensitive little boy, uh, by all accounts. The second of three, the middle child of the Hurtler family. We grew up in Runnymede, New Jersey, just a 90 minute drive to my grandpa's house down the shore in the summertime. I used to love running around on the beach and hearing the sound of the ocean. It gave me a sense of freedom that I never really felt back home. Kids bullied me a lot, as kids will do. And uh, my parents, they argued a lot, as parents will do. But the fact that these things weren't uncommon didn't make them any easier to live with. Get on your knees right now and tell me I'm the king. Look, would, would you please just, just leave me alone? Do it! Mike is the king, all the way down. Mike is the king, louder. Mike is the king. <laughs> Get up, you little pussy. You little pussy Dougie Hurtler. You know, I asked myself the question why a lot as a kid. Why do people take such pleasure in being so mean to each other? And, and you know, I, I never wanted really to fight back or, or, or get revenge. I, I just wanted to have nice friends or at least be left alone. I got really good at the alone part. Well, I'm reminded of my brother, John Paul. Well, he's standing about a hundred yards away from the new hut. My friends and I had built this perplexed five-year-old kid well, he's gazing in our direction and he's afraid to come any nearer on account of the stones. You see, we shout at him to get out of here, beat it, go on home. And we wing a couple of more rocks in his direction. He does not move. His tremendous desire to be with us and do what we are doing will not permit him to go away, the law 
written in his nature says that he must be with his elder brother and do what he is doing. And he cannot understand why this law of love is being so wildly and unjustly violated. Well, I got my own taste of being unwanted. It was the first day at the new school in the big graveled yard, all those fierce cat-like little faces looking at me and pulling and twisting my ears and kicking me and shouting various kinds of insults. Oh, after this, everybody accepted me. I laid awake at night in the huge dark dormitory and I knew for the first time in my life the pangs of desolation and emptiness and abandonment. Playing sports helped me to deal with things. I was a, a dogged defender in soccer and I excelled at track, racing the half mile all the way to my high school record my senior year. And the high school musicals, they, they definitely helped. I discovered that I could sing and dance in front of a large audience and that they would actually clap for me. It started with the chorus of Hello Dolly, but by senior year, I had gotten the lead in, in Guys and Dolls. Nathan Detroit, AKA Frank Sinatra. Sue me, sue me, what can you do me? I love you. And speaking of love, I had a girlfriend my sophomore year. Her name was Lori and she was the greatest happiness that I had ever known. But then she decided that she loved two people and she picked the other guy. So keep that nice chunk of betrayal on top of all of the other accumulated bullshit of my little lifetime. And high school deep down, it just felt like grade school again. Uncomfortable clicks, unrequited love and my chronic inability to just put it all behind me, take things a little less seriously. Yeah, right. Father, father was in bed when I saw him in the hospital and I knew at once there was no hope of his living much longer. The tumor had raised a tremendous swelling on his forehead. How are you, father? He reached out his hand and I could see that he could no longer even speak. But at the same time, you could see that he knew us. He knew what was going on. His, his mind was clear. But the sorrow of his great helplessness fell upon me like a mountain. I was crushed by it. Tears sprang to my eyes. And I hid my face in the blanket and cried. The poor father wept too. Well, there was nothing anyone could do. Barely a week later, I was summoned to the headmaster's study and he handed me a telegram which said that father was dead. <laughs> well, the sorry business is all over. My mind, my mind made nothing of it. There was nothing I seemed to be able to grasp. Here was a man with a wonderful mind and a great talent 
and a great heart. And what's more, he was the man who had brought me up into this world, cared for me, nourished me, shaped my soul, and to whom I was bound by every possible bond of affection and admiration and reverence. Killed by a growth on his brain. Well, what was I to make of so much suffering? It was a raw wound for which there was no adequate relief. You had to take it like an animal. Try to stupefy yourself if you like, but it will all devour you in the end. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we transition from the world of the play, a Trinitarian dynamic, and we join together, you and I, Merton, you and me, a living Trinity together in community. We end this excerpt from the play with Merton's painful lamentation of suffering and loss that he so honestly and courageously and intimately shares with us. And we reflect on our lives and a pandemic and the staggering loss of life and the political strife. And we yearn for a new tomorrow. After accepting the invitation to present this evening, I looked up at my bookcase and Merton's The New Man beckoned me. And I had a sense that the reason for this was the title, The New Man, The New Year. Let's just get beyond COVID. Let's have a rebirth. Let's start anew. And so I opened up the new man looking for hope, I'm sure. And I was greeted with these words, the war within us. Life and death are at war within us. As soon as we are born, we begin at the same time to live and die. Even though we might not even be slightly aware of it, this battle of life and death goes on in us inexorably and without mercy. If by chance we become fully conscious of it, not only in our flesh and in our emotions, but above all in our spirit, we find ourselves involved in a terrible wrestling, an agonia, not of questions and answers, but of being and nothingness, spirit and void. And he goes on to call this the most terrible of all wars. Needless to say, this was not what I was expecting to find when I opened up the book, though I had read it certainly in the past. I was struck by the visceral existential intensity of his words and how provocative and maybe even offensive that statement might have been considered. History has shown us innumerable examples of the casualties, the grotesque violence and horrors of armed conflict. Families and friendships are being torn about right now. They are at war. 
and yet Merton says this inner agonia is the most terrible of all wars. What is the relationship between these exterior and interior forms of war in your life? How and where do they make their presence known? Do you seek to avoid or escape this battle of life and death that Merton describes with such urgency? Do you say, to hell with this war, this war was never meant for me. I'm gonna bypass Gethsemane and Calvary and I'm headed straight to the resurrection. Or maybe rather you'd say, well, look, I, I've been there. I've done that. I was in a dark place once, but, but now I'm saved. And now it's time to focus on all those non-believers out there. As if this suffering, death, and resurrection thing were a one-time event, rather than a lifetime of stages and inner revolutions and transformations. Merton emphatically demonstrates to us throughout his life that neither form of war can be ignored. As he confronts the most daunting of all questions, who am I, in his beautiful, raw autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, and that very famous first sentence of his, which immediately sets the stage for us. On the last day of January 1915, under the sign of the water bearer, in a year of a great war, and down in the shadow of some French mountains on the borders of Spain, I came into the world. Free by nature in the image of God, I was nevertheless the prisoner of my own violence and my own selfishness in the image of a world into which I was born. That world was the picture of hell, full of men like myself, loving God and yet hating him, born to love him, living instead in fear and hopeless self-contradictory hungers. And then we move to the very last line of this whirlwind, passionate spiritual narrative. And we find ourselves right back where we started in the presence of war, as he says, on the fourth day, they had buried John Paul in the sea. And we are submerged once again in the inner agonia. And then Merton's heart-rending poetic homage to his Sweet brother, as the book moves in to the epilogue. The very first entry we have from Merton's extant journals, the first page, May 2nd, 1939, he's 24 years old and he says, St. Augustine's problems are everybody's, except he did not have a war to worry him. And just a few months later in August, it feels that anything that has ever had any happiness about this civilization, all the happy things that civilization has produced, like Chaplin movies, they're all gone and done with. Nothing left but the wars 
the West Wall, the Maginot Line, the bombers. Bombers are our only shining things. 23 years later, he's 47 years old, and he pens the original child bomb. Point 33 for meditation, he writes, the men in the planes perceived that the raid had been successful, but they thought of the people in the city and they were not perfectly happy. Some felt they had done wrong, but in any case, they had obeyed orders. It was war. We go back five years earlier. We listened to an excerpt from his poem, The Guns of Fort Knox. Guns at the camp, I hear them suddenly. Guns make the little houses jump. I feel explosions in my feet through boards. Wars work under the floors. Wars dance in the foundations. Trees must also feel the guns they do not want even in their core. As each charge bumps the shocked earth, they shudder from the root. And he finishes. Guns, I say, this is not the right resurrection. All day long, you punch the doors of death to wake a slain generation. Let them lie still. Let them sleep on, guns. Shake no more, but leave the locks secure. Hell's door. And I'll end this necessarily brief and woefully incomplete sweep through Merton's writings on war with the cold, hard fact that following his death, his body was transported back to the United States on a Vietnam War bomber aircraft, along with the dead bodies of fallen American soldiers, casualties of war. Merton's life was saturated with war. Its exterior reality and its atmospheric milieu constantly pressing itself into his consciousness and its inner reality, his personal existential battle of life and death, the loss of his brother and his intimate receptivity to the collective trauma of humanity. These were never ending tidal currents, tsunamis at times in his life. During this past summer, at the ITMS conference, I posed the question, could Merton have ever written the later works he wrote without first plunging into the depths of his own spiritual journey by writing the seven story mountain? And I would add, consciously and vigilantly bearing witness to his own life by maintaining his journals. I'm inclined to say no, he could not have. But another question I pose to you now is, who is Thomas Merton without the reality of war permeating his life? Can we imagine the emergence of his prophetic voice without the exterior and interior agony of war pressing against him? And what does that say about the function of war in shaping his soul, in shaping our souls? Does war play a necessary role in our spiritual development? Now, I know that I'm in the presence of many courageous activists living and deceased who through the years and at great personal sacrifice 
heard and responded to the call to offer their lives in the service of peace. And so as I move forward and offer some further reflections or questions that may sound naive or absurd, I will beg your forgiveness as we dive deeper into what has felt like a labyrinth of paradox as I prepared this portion of the presentation tonight. Merton writes in No Man is an Island, now anxiety is the mark of spiritual insecurity. It is the fruit of unanswered questions, but questions cannot go unanswered unless they first be asked. And there is a far worse anxiety, a far worse insecurity, which comes from being afraid to ask the right questions because they might turn out to have no answer. One of the moral diseases we communicate to one another in society comes from huddling together in the pale light of an insufficient answer to a question we are afraid to ask. So let us look at our own lives right now in 2022. Certainly we have been and we will continue to be surrounded by the realities of war. First and foremost, a global pandemic taking millions of lives and simultaneously fracturing and uniting enormous populations of people, revealing many things about who we are and who we are not as individuals and as an interdependent species. And then there is the language of war and how this language acts on our minds and our hearts and our bodies as an ongoing presence in our lives. And we reflect for a moment on this, this cursory list of war language. We go back to the Vietnam War and there was the Cold War and the threat of nuclear war. And there was the Persian Gulf War and the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. And it seems now we are in a new Cold War, a possible World War III, they say. There's the war on terror and the global war on terror. And of course we have our culture wars. And they say there is a war on traditional values a war on religion, a war on Christianity. There is surely a war of Christianity. And there are spiritual wars. There's the war on drugs and the war on poverty and economic wars and race wars. And people are reflecting once again on the revolutionary war. And is there a new civil war? And don't forget the just war. And every other day, it seems like we are tempted to engage in a war of words with our friends and our family and any other damn stranger that will listen to our righteous voices. And then there is the war inside our heads. St. Paul writes, so then I discover the principle that when I want to do right, evil is at hand. I take delight in the law of God, in my inner self, but I see in my members another principle at war with the law of my mind. So what is it with war? Why is it so omnipresent in our lives? Merton writes that the root of war is fear. Does that not imply that in order to abolish war, we would have to first conquer fear? Is fear something that can be destroyed? Or must it rather be transformed? And do we imagine this process ending at some point while we are alive? Or is, 
the very nature of perfecting our humanity of continuous conscious commitment to this inner alchemy of transformation and redemption. Thomas Keating, fellow Trappist monk, in his little book, The Human Condition, speaks of the Genesis account of Adam and Eve, hiding, afraid, naked and vulnerable in the garden. And Keating writes, at every moment of our lives, God is asking you, where are you? Why are you hiding? Where are we hiding in our lives right now? Who are we hiding from? Who are our enemies? Which parts of ourselves do these enemies compensate for? When are we going to stop being so afraid to plumb the depths of our interior life unto the source of our sinfulness, leaving us naked and vulnerable so that we might then be able to offer ourselves fully and freely to our fellow human beings? Perhaps war is but the most terrible of all reminders that we are not God and that we are certainly not yet fully human. I'd like to finish with a question for you to take with you and then I'll read a short poem by Merton. The question is this, is it possible that we and by we, I mean all of us, our religious traditions, our nations, our species, that we are unaware or have willfully ignored or are simply unable to fully grasp the ontological inevitability of human conflict and yes, war at this stage of our evolutionary development. Might it be necessary for us to hold in the depths of our souls the overwhelming tension and unbearable pain of this insidious purgative reality and hold it right up against Christ's commandment, unflinching and seemingly unreachable to love our enemies and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in doing this, in consenting to dive wholly into this contradiction, this crucifixion, then we dispose ourselves to the inflow of God's grace. And then we might descend right into the heart of the earth where their entire human condition is yearning to be liberated and redeemed and freed from the slavery of its own hubris. And then to be able to truly taste and see for the first time the reality of life in the Paschal mystery. The poem that I would like to share with you is titled Senescente Mundo, which translates from Latin as the world grows old. Senescente Mundo, when the hot globe shrivels and cracks and uninhibited atoms Resolve earth and water, fruit and flower, body and animal soul. All the blue stars come tumbling down. Beauty and ugliness and love and hate, wisdom and politics are all alike 
undone. Toward that fiery day we run like crabs with our bad tempered armor on, with blood and carpets, oranges and ashes, rubber and limes and bones. So sing the children on the avenue. With cardboard and dirty water and a few flames for the peace lover's ghost. We know where the dead bodies are, studying the ceiling from the floors of their homes with smoke and roses, slate and wire and crushed fruit and much fire. Yet in the middle of this murderous season, great Christ, my fingers touch thy wheat and hold thee hidden in the compass of thy paper sun. There is no war will not obey this cup of blood, this wine in which I sink thy words in the anonymous dawn. I hear a sovereign talking in my arteries, reversing with his promises all things that now go on with fire and thunder. His truth is greater than disaster. His peace imposes silence on the evidence against us. And though the world at last has swallowed her own solemn laughter and has condemned herself to hell, suppose a whole new universe, a great clean kingdom would arise up like an Atlantis in the east. Suppose this earth, this cinder, surprise us with new holiness. Here in my hands, I hold that secret Easter. Tomorrow, this will be my mass's answer because of my companions whom the wilderness has eaten, crying like Jonas in the belly of our whale. Amen. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Doug. That was uh, pretty special. In fact, it was so engaging, I almost forgot I was supposed to be the one at the end to, to open up and, and uh, ask you questions. So uh, I caught myself at some point thinking, wow, I better get with it. So wonderful, so much stuff and, and new ways to look at uh, some things that are familiar to many of us. The first thing that popped in my mind as you were talking and doing this wonderful uh, move between Merton and yourself as, as Doug is, uh, I don't know, maybe it was in the 1980s where there was this movement where people talked about biography as theology. And I was thinking how interesting it was that you were using both Merton and his life and his experience, as well as your own, to do some theological reflection and and even theological concluding. So, so I really appreciated that. The other thing I was very aware of is, is the energy you brought to us and how quickly you get us engaged with what you were doing. And I wonder for you, if you've thought about the relationship between the energy that you were able to generate and the spirit, it could even be Holy Spirit if you want. So I'm interested in the energy spirit uh, combination and 
and whether you think about that and how you may um, think about even incarnating it and bringing it to, to us as an audience tonight. Sure. I think in some ways it speaks to what I've come to increasingly believe, increasingly believe is the necessity of live storytelling. Um, and of course we have theater, but not nearly enough of us experience theater. Uh, and at times it's not necessarily too intimate. It's a production that we sit on the outside of and that we enjoy, or it might be deep material but it's not the same thing as little children gathering at the feet of a storyteller and being in a room together and looking in each other's eyes and sharing the wonder and awe and pain and grief of a journey. And I think that's one reason why solo performances are exponentially increasing right now. Memoirs are being written, written at a rate I think we haven't probably seen um, at any time recently. I think there is a desperate yearning for connection. And I think we all frankly have a desperate responsibility to want to know the stories of other people, particularly those who we consider our enemies. And God knows that list just keeps getting bigger and bigger anymore. And the chasm keeps growing larger and larger. And people are compartmentalized into objectified units and they cease being human beings. But when we're in a room together and we open our hearts to someone else's fear, even if we don't believe the fear is justified, even if we believe the rationale for that fear is misplaced, it's fear and it's real and we need people to feel comfortable sharing it and we cannot castigate them if we think their fear is unworthy of our time because unless societally we start plumbing the depths a little bit and allowing our vulnerability to come out even if it doesn't sound politically correct or it offends us we will not advance. It's just not possible. If the root of war is fear, and I'm perfectly willing to go along with that premise, we're not going to destroy fear. All we can do is witness it and honor it and be instruments for that fear to be in the presence of love and to see what might just be able to happen. We are called to be reconciling forces in the world. And we are called to hold those tensions in our hearts and to open ourselves to that grace of reconciliation all at the same time. I hope that adequately responds to the question. Absolutely. And all of that, that generates the energy. People, people are pregnant with energy. There is a quote that I'd, I'd like to share with you. This is a perfect uh, moment to do it. It is um, a quote of Howard Thurman. And he's using it in the context of, in Jesus and the Disinherited, he's using it in the context of being told by his grandmother that he is not a nigger, that he is not a slave, that he is a child of God. 
And these words I found so powerful. Give me a moment that I might find it. For Howard Thurman, anything. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know it's here. I met him a couple of times once upon a, a time. I loved listening to him. I'm not seeing it now. All right. But I'll, I'll, I'll come up with it. Trust me. Good. Let's continue. Well, Kathleen Tarr has a really interesting question for you. Yes. She asks, we can guess that Merton has maybe changed everything about you. In what way specifically? And how has Merton changed your character in ways you might even be a little embarrassed or uncomfortable to publicly admit? I mean, embarrassed is, is just recognizing how driven I was by my false self, to use Merton's term, how unconsciously thrust into the future of doing, having no sense of being whatsoever. Maybe that's a little unfair. Maybe the play, the play shows some nuance in that regard. But the fact is, we as a society are woefully uneducated when it comes to psychology. Never mind spirituality, but psychology, just the nature of the human psyche. It's a, it's a grave problem. And so at the, at the seeds of my encounter with Merton was the rattling of my psyche and the very slow growing awareness of just how judgmental and impatient and determined to, to what? Conquer the world, to fix everybody, to change things in the image and likeness that I believe they should be, which is what Merton was so afraid social activism could so easily become. And so yes, there is, there is embarrassment. I, I refer openly to family and friends about my, my 20s, my preachy 20s. They were my preachy 20s. There was nothing I didn't know. It's ridiculous. And yet, and this is really important, there was an innocent intent that was always there. But that innocent intent is easily hijacked uh, by, by the unconscious, by our shadow, to use Jung's term. And so when you really start to recognize those qualities that you've been driving through life with, you pull over on the side of the road at a rest stop and take a deep breath and you say, oh my God, I gotta get back on the road again. But it's like in AA, when you start to start to kind of review your life and, and you recognize um, some people that you need to make amends with. Um, certainly that's part of the spiritual journey. Uh, Merton, Merton began that genuine existential crisis. Um, and he completely took me out of my, of my acting profession and forced me to leap into a, a spiritual life that um, somehow in my mind, I thought I was living and I hadn't even started yet. Cool. Well, I was really amazed when you started down the path of, of talking about the, the language of war. Um, you, you just went on and on. It's like, whoa. I wonder, could you 
talk a bit about how you discovered that war theme that you developed so well and um, and how, how important it became in the work that you shared with us tonight and probably beyond. So can you talk a bit about how you how you discovered that theme? Probably many of us have, have read it, but never that way. When I opened up the new man and was taken aback by words I had already seen years ago, the war within us, and I read that first sentence, it started to wash over me um, that Merton began his autobiography talking about war. I was born in the year of a war. And then, and I went back and I looked at that and I thought, wait a second, the last line of this narrative before we get into the poem in the epilogue is him reflecting on his brother being buried at sea. His, his entire life story up until that point begins with war and ends with war. That's, that is something not to be overlooked. And so that was the beginning of reflecting on not just the presence of war in his life, but how completely inundated we are with the language, the reality of war on an exterior level, but then what Merton refers to, the inner agonia and our convenient avoidance of it or insecurity about talking about it our lack of education as to what to do with it when it happens, um, all of those things. Um, and ultimately culminating in these larger questions that I, that I posed to you about war, which I admittedly, I'll say again, felt a bit intimidated by even proffering given the company that I'm in um, and, and the, the heroic efforts people have made to abolish war, to end war. But I couldn't help but think, is that possible? And that's not to suggest that we don't try. Of course we try. We try to perfect our being. It is our Christian spiritual journey. Do we expect to become perfect? Is that a reality that we expect to be perfect? And so I felt like it was an important question because not be, again, not because we, we must not always in our own way seek to be instruments of peace and live in the, in the footsteps of St. Francis, but because expectations are really important and contradictions are easily avoided when a righteous cause lives in our body and in our veins and pulses, or to use Thurman's word, tremors, the tremor of raw energy no matter where it's channeled. Because if that energy isn't harnessed properly, the contemplative dimension is lost. And rest assured, our false self is gonna find a way to hijack that and, and, and take over the driver's seat. I remember Richard Rohr saying so beautifully and simply that when he started the community, the New Jerusalem, I forget what age he was, maybe in his 20s at that point. He said, I did the right thing for all the wrong reasons. I was, he said, I was completely driven by my false self. So there's that interesting juxtaposition. And, and we know paradox is a word that comes up a lot with Merton. And he speaks of it all the time. But just how comfortable are we with it? 
just how is how important is it for us to designate the smart people and the stupid people in society <laughs> especially now god knows there's there's plenty of there's plenty of uh, material to work with but this aspect of of understanding the war within us and the nuances of contradiction it plays itself out in every moment of our lives, which is why I brought in Thomas Keating. Why God always asking, where are you? Where are you right now? What are you hiding from? And so I, I, I think that it's, it can be very easy for us to not recognize that this is a moment, it sounds cliche, this is a moment by moment, day by day, month by month journey. And that the expectation that, that we will usher in the kingdom of God and have a new Eden next week, which would imply that we've, we've transformed all of our fear. There can be no more war because there is no more fear. How realistic is that? And can we step back from that and allow something new to be present amidst those, contradic those contradictions and within the paradox? Merton ultimately wrote uh, in the introduction to the Thomas Merton reader, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, I have come to recognize that the paradox in my life, which creates, which is generated by such profound insecurity has come to be, the acceptance of this paradox has come to be the source of my greatest security. Living in the contradictions and not flagellating ourselves for being sinful and getting it wrong and not blowing up our ego for doing something that was so wonderful and so good and so right and that people were so uh, grateful for. Well, you've, you've been wonderful. The, the questions are still coming in, but in the interest of time, I'm going to throw it back to uh, Teresa now. So thank you. Thank you. Well, Doug, thank you so much. I hope that you could hear the standing ovation cascading through the airwaves for this immensely engaging um, uh, uh, production, uh, presentation and performance that you gave us this evening. It was just terrific. And, and uh, in a way so different from what we're used to. Although I think on Tuesdays with Merton, we've had a variety of approaches and this was certainly unique and uh, very much appreciated. Uh, I want to also thank Father Dan Haran and the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's College for providing the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. He is our ghost in the machine who's managing things in the background. And Alan Culp, who again so skillfully moderated the questions and also uh, for his, the insightful questions that he himself raises um, for us. Uh, I want to thank Bob Ripp, who posts the webinars on YouTube, and Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. You can find links to uh, the previous recordings of Tuesdays with Merton at merton.org slash ITMS. And Doug's presentation will soon be there also. And you can um, tell your friends uh, about it and uh, invite them to watch it on YouTube if they were unable to be here in person. Um, on that same website, you'll also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. We also welcome donations to help underwrite such programs as Tuesdays with Merton. 
Registration is out now open for next month's Tuesdays with Merton when Professor Stephen Millies will speak on our crisis of authority in Thomas Merton. Stephen is a professor of public theology and the director of the Bernardin Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. To register, go to that same website, merton.org ITMS. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in February.